the Ravens won on Thursday. Well, yeah, in a next week's podcast, which was pre-recorded, uh, I may I may take a little bit of ribbing because I made a prediction, <laughs> but I still might be right on the number of games we won and lost. But the Ravens won Thursday, which is a way of saying the Steelers handed the game to us. Right, right. Uh, but better yesterday, there were no Ravens on, so I just enjoyed hanging with the kids. And even my son, Ben, said, Dad, you seem more relaxed than usual. <laughs> and that was probably uh, an implicit indictment on my fatherhood and <laughs> lack of character. But it was it was good to watch football and not care. <laughs> so I am doing – and I'm even more excited because of our guest Why today. did you not care? You're not a Ravens fan? Oh, no, no. I'm a big Ravens fan. Uh, and look, our You're guest is – You live in Baltimore, is, then. Uh, uh, yes, yes. We are here in Baltimore, Dr. Kraft, and uh, – uh, huge Ravens well, fan, but it's been a tough well, start. Well, we Patriots, we Patriots fans pity the rest of the universe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was coming. I knew that was coming at some point. And um, hey, after the intro here, Nathan, we need to get. I need to ask Doctor Craig a few Patriots questions. That's so, right. <laughs> yeah, I I, I want to see. Uh, Sort of an apologetics Tom Brady fusion, but we'll get to that. <laughs> and Dr. Well, Craig. Roger Goodell is going to be the one that's going to apologize. Yep. <laughs> he, will, he will be deflated. Yes, yes, I think much truth in that. Um, and, and as we've said, our, our guest today, Dr. Peter Kraft, um, author of the book that we are going to, author of many books, but the one we're going to talk about specifically today, Between Heaven and Hell. Dr. Kraft, how are you today? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being on. So excited. Um, and I can uh, I can share the uh, Patriots spirit with you. I'm from New Hampshire originally. So um, when I transplanted to Baltimore, kind of took the uh, the team with me. So um, it's it's nice to not be outnumbered. <laughs> yes. Well, I, moving, moving out of New England usually involves a kind of a semi-religious conversion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes it, 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 it was, in a, in a sense. I got married. Yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> oh, true. that'll do it. Yeah, and and I've been working on him, Doctor Craig. To uh, my my wife is from the Bronx. She she grew up a few blocks from Yankee Stadium. So oh wow! Oh wow! The iron now. Yes. Oh my goodness. So you are a uh, you are a Red Sox man as well. Uh, is the Pope Catholic? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow! I didn't re- see if I had realized all this going into it, Nathan. We would have had virtually a fifty percent sports. Uh, section of our conversation today, uh, but uh, I'll let you lead us to a better intro, Dr. Kraft. Absolutely. Um, so, Dr. Kraft, um, just for those who don't know you um, on our podcast, who aren't familiar with your work, could you just give us a, a brief bio about yourself, um, your experiences, some of the things that you've done, friends, family, whatever you feel comfortable sharing with us? We'd love to hear about it. Well, let's see. Let's start with the fact that I was born on the planet Mars, and my flying saucer deposited my mistake on the screen planet called Earth, which is a nice place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. Uh, I was born sometime during the Jurassic Age, I think, and I've been teaching at Boston College for about 50 years. Wow. I'm an absent-minded professor, a professor of philosophy. Most absent-minded professors have ADD, and professors of philosophy have ADHD. That's attention deficit high definition. Yeah. (laughs) That's good. So I've written an obscene number of books. Uh, they just keep coming. Uh, and I'm not really a scholar. My uh, job, I think, is to build bridges between the scholars and ordinary people. Yes. So I write books for ordinary people. Yes, yes. And uh, family, Dr. Craig. Of course. Uh, I have one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, one wife, four children, uh, four pets, uh, one gut. Hey, so, oh, I like that. I like that. We, um, we've talked to some people that have heard you in other venues, and I have to say, uh, I'm setting you up to see if you remember this. They, they said you introed one of your talks by, I think I have this right, what's the difference between a, a 12-cut large pizza uh, and a philosopher? Yeah, a large pizza can comfortably feed a family of four. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm, however, uh, however, a pizza cannot write a lot of books. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so that's the compensation. Yes. Yes. I'm I'm a father of four myself and uh, have um, not written anywhere near the volume nor the uh, the uh, the erudition you've put into your books. But we are uh, thrilled thrilled to have you here um, today, Doctor Craig. Thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. So we want to get started. Um, we want to talk to you uh, first about your uh, book, Between Heaven and Hell. Um, can you give us a brief uh, brief summary of the book and uh, just talk to us a little bit about that? Because that was written back in 1984. Is that correct? I think it was something like that. I think that's the third full-length book I wrote. Uh, and I wrote it when I suddenly realized that C.S. <clears throat> Lewis, <clears throat> John F. Kennedy, and Aldous Huxley all died the same afternoon. Wow. Uh, and here, these people represent three very different worldviews, probably the three basic options in the history of the world. Uh, Huxley defended uh, Eastern mysticism, Hinduism, and Buddhism, and Lewis defended Christian theism. And I interpreted Kennedy as a kind of a secular pragmatist with a thin Catholic veneer. Right. So once I realized uh, that divine providence had set up that dialogue in the next world, uh, I imagined it, and I wrote the book in three days. Wow! Wow! Is that how does that stand um, in terms of your many books? In terms of influence, is that one that? Um, has because that's the first time I ever heard of you. Somebody said, "Dutch, you got to read this book." This is when I was in college, uh, twenty plus years ago. Uh, so the book was probably ten years old by then, and um, you know, I loved it, and I've been sort of uh, refamiliarizing myself with it. But um, is that a, is that a popular one of the many books you've written? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah it's remained in print all the time, and it has sold over a hundred thousand copies. Wow, that's great. That's great. And there's a movie company that uh, has the rights on it. I don't think it'll ever be made into a movie, but uh, oh man, what a what a great movie it would be! And um, obviously, it, it, fair to say, Doctor Crave, C.S. Lewis is the is the winner of the debate. Is that fair to say in that dialogue? Uh, C.S. Lewis was the winner of every debate he ever had yeah. with any male human being throughout yes, his life. Yes, yes. I, very well phrased because he was, um, and you can help me with this, but he was rather depressed, right, at a famous female foe who he thought dismantled him in a debate. Well, I think that's, that's a myth. Okay. Uh, he did recognize that Elizabeth Anscombe had uh, uh, corrected him, uh, and he revised one of his books, Miracles, in light of her correction. Interesting. But it didn't devastate him. Okay. And it didn't make him lose his faith. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, this is what happens when I listen to dramatic preachers uh, <laughs> that tell great stories. Um, yeah, so, what devastated him was the death of his wife. Yeah. In the movie Shadowlands, that's, that's a beautifully done movie. Yeah. Although the ending is uh, not complete. It's rather ambiguous. 
Right. But if you if you read his uh, little autobiographical thing, Adrian Observed, which yes. is Reflections on the Death of His Wife, you see that he went through a real Job-like experience. Yeah, mm. yeah. Do you, uh, do you feel that uh, C.S. Lewis is your uh, most influential um, scholar uh, that oh, yeah, you've read? Definitely. That's, yeah, definitely. I, I can't get him out of my mind. He keeps inhabiting different areas in my brain. Wow, wow. Because he's, he's such a, a complete figure. I mean, he's got uh, reason, and he's got imagination, and he's got a heart, and he's, you know, the truth, the good, and the beautiful. It's a complete package. Yes, yes. And, and to take us into that book a little bit, because, actually, Nathan, why don't you give the plug now, our shameless plug? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we want to give away three of, uh, three of your books, uh, Dr. Kraft, um, to our listeners out there, um, Between Heaven and Hell. Uh, for those of our listeners, um, we want to say if you just um, take this recording that uh, is going to be coming out and just post it to your Facebook page, repost it to your Facebook page, and then email us, uh, we're going to send you a free Kindle copy of the um, of the book. So, yeah, so that's our that's our little um, uh, contest type of uh, thing we we put in there every week, Doctor Crave. But about the book, because I think a lot of people will find it very interesting. Uh, obviously they, they meet. And what I love about the book is in the back, you include an outline uh, so that in a sense, for me, if you lose your place sort of halfway through, you, 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 you can find the forest uh, first and sort of see you know, what, what tree line you are in. And I, uh, I found that uh, what was so helpful was in the outline, you really break down uh, the principal arguments that each person is using. So I, I have to ask, with JFK, did you catch any heat? I don't know. Obviously, we're, we're evangelical Protestants over here on, on our side of things. When you wrote that book, did you catch any heat from people that thought you were denigrating uh, JFK, making more of him more of a humanist pragmatist than a Catholic? Not really. Okay. I mean, there are a few people that worship John F. Kennedy here in Boston, but yeah. uh, I'm not good friends with any of them. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. The book was an exercise in the imagination, and I may be wrong and unfair to Kennedy in presenting him that way. Uh, I got that impression mainly from Gary Wills' book, Her Ruined Choirs, which is rather cynical about Kennedy. Interesting. But it, it, it fit the uh, topic of the book. The book is, is a fun read, if I do say so myself, yes. because uh, you've got three different personalities, as well as three different philosophies, arguing in dialogue. Uh, and there's I always thought dialogue was much more interesting than monologue. I don't know why more philosophers don't write dialogues like Plato did. But the right way to write a dialogue is not to, first of all, outline it with a nice, neat, logical order and then fill in the characters, because then the characters are are stiff. The right way to write a dialogue is to imagine that you are each of these three characters and what did you say, and then hope that the uh, logical order follows. And this book, quite uh, unaccountably, did both at the same time. As you say, the outline in the back of the book shows the logical order of the thought, uh, but that's not where I started. I right. started with uh, my imagination. It just happened to fit into a logical order. Yes. So I think, if I do say so myself, the book is uh, worth reading for the characters and also uh, clear and logical at the same time. Yes, yes, it was. And it is it is a fun read. I remember I was uh, looking it over the uh, weekend. Your, I think the first line is JFK saying, where the hell are we? Um, uh-huh. And Lewis says, doesn't he say something like, you must be a Catholic? 
Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's, it's the accent. Oh, okay, that's what it was. Yeah, that was just a very clever way to uh, very clever way to start. And I think the thing that stood out to me in it is, I mean, the little bit I knew of Huxley at that time when I first read it was Huxley the the novelist, um, yep. and never really considered him as much uh, uh, of a philosopher. But my ignorance was exposed there, and. Um, uh, he's he wrote. I believe you mentioned that in the book. Some uh, some other works, right, where you can really get a sense of his worldview. Correct. Well, there's a lot of different Huxley. Uh, Huxley was an apologist for hallucinogenic drugs. Right. That's how he died experimenting with LSD. Wow. He was also a a very genuine scholar and popularizer of uh, Oriental mysticism. His wow. anthology, the Perennial Philosophy, is to my mind the best anthology of mysticism that wow. I know of. Uh, so there's a lot of facets to his personality. Interesting, interesting. So uh, you you obviously tried to bring some of that out in the book as well, and uh, very interesting read. So I, I always wanted to ask you uh, about that if I ever got the chance, and finally did. So I hope our uh, our listeners will uh, enjoy that. But uh, Nathan, I think it's going to take us into some uh, skeptical questions for you, and uh, if you put on your uh, apologist hat. Um, which I hope... Now, here's a question, Dr. Crave. Can an apologist feed a family of four? <laughs> yeah, if okay. he's a good apologist. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and the family's not too... Uh, uh, too in, not that much into yuppie TV. <laughs> yeah. Yes, my, my father growing up always said that we had a... Uh, Champagne taste on a beer budget, and it was hard to <laughs> hard to take care of things. But we'll uh, we'll do our best here. But uh, there's, there's a great one of the proverbs uh, that says, uh, uh, "God, please give me uh, neither poverty nor riches, because if I have poverty, I'm tempted to steal, and if I have riches, I'll get fat, lazy, and, and comfortable." Yes, yes, very good. So, Doctor Kraft. Um, the first question I would ask is, um, you know, I, I, I don't believe in God. And so what evidence is, what are the things around us that you would point to, to point me to a God? I mean, obviously C.S. Lewis wrote Mere Christianity. And I almost want to take us on a, a brief snippet of that journey, starting with the, the one who doesn't believe in God and progressing into the one who believes that there is a God out there, but narrowing it down. Um, to the Christian God, and then finally to to Christ. Um, so we're going to kind of go on that journey here. Um, so what are some of those evidences that you would point to to say to, to the person, you know, yes, there is a God, and here are some of the things that, that you can look to as a reasonable person that supports that? Well, there's two kinds of evidence, because there's two poles to all human experience, the inside and the outside, or the subjective and the objective. So if you look at the objective evidence, the order and intelligence and design and nature has always led almost all cultures to believe in some sort of superhuman intelligence behind that. Uh, But if you look inside, which was much more interesting to Lewis in the arguments that he preferred, uh, you find things like uh, conscience, uh, a moral law, the idea that we're, we're absolutely obligated to be good rather than evil. And we find nothing absolute in our world, uh, society, our genes, our ancestors, uh, what works politically. These are all relative. 
So if there's no God behind conscience, conscience is a fake. But almost nobody can believe that conscience is a fake. That's his argument at the beginning of mere Christianity. His favorite argument from within, I think, is the argument from desire. Uh, it's basically an exposition of the most famous line in Augustine's Confessions, where Augustine prays, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. Mm-hmm. Uh, our deepest desire can't be satisfied by anything in this world. We have a lover's quarrel with the world. We're never, we're never totally and completely happy. Uh, why is that? Every innate and natural human desire corresponds to some object. For every hunger, there's a food. And now we have a hunger for something we can't even define, much less get in this world. Doesn't that very strongly indicate that it exists in another world? Interesting. Now, I think I've heard you lecture on this, um, uh, Dr. Kraft, uh, a couple of times in the past and searching some things on YouTube. W- would you say, uh, as a good philosopher that you are, that God's existence cannot be proven? I think I've heard you say that before. Is that right? Well, that's ambiguous. Uh, there's a sense in which the answer is yes and a sense in which the answer is no. I don't think you can start with the idea of God that you get from any religion, including Christianity, and prove all of it. Mm-hmm. I do think you can prove a thin slice of it and refute atheism by reason alone. Mm-hmm. So the God that reason can prove without faith and divine revelation is, uh, well, a God that comes from the evidence, the, the arguments that I just gave a moment ago. Uh, the argument from design and nature and the argument from uh, conscience and desire inside us. Uh, the conclusion of that is that there's got to be something more than human, some mysterious X or other that somehow, we don't know how, can can explain these things. But that's rather abstract compared with the God that we know by divine revelation, especially the complete revelation in Christ. Interesting. So you, would you say uh, when you uh, have debated uh, atheists, people with a completely different worldview, um, that they, they really can't prove their position either? Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, and most of them claim that they can't prove it. They just right. claim that uh, the God hypothesis is a little bit like oh, Elvis sightings, flying saucers, or, or other myths. Sure, sure. Okay, good, good. Now, let me well, ask. there's one exception. There's one exception. Atheists who are uh, very moral atheists usually think that the problem of evil uh, really refutes God, at least a good God. Right. How how can there be an all good and all powerful God if evil exists? Right. That's that's the one very serious argument for atheism. Yeah. Now let's talk about that for a little bit, uh, Doctor Kreft, because um, that is that is usually where um, because you, you kind of broke down the argument into the two basic camps: the the scientific thought that you know the disproving of God through science, but then the disproving of God through um, through the moral. Um, center of a person. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. Um, what would be your argument to someone who said, well, there can't be a God because look at all the evil that's in the world, and because of that evil, you know, if there was a God, he would just fix it? Mm-hmm. Well, the answer to that objection can't be uh, a proof for the existence of God, because that just leaves two offensive teams on the field and nobody's playing defense. Right, right. You have to you have to defend the existence of God against the objection that claims, uh, quite reasonably, to have disproved it. Yeah. 
if God is all good, he wills nothing but good. If he's all powerful, he gets everything he wills. And if he's all wise, he knows exactly what he's doing. So how come there's evil? And the only possible answer is, uh, first of all, evil arises not from God, but from human free will. Mm-hmm. And secondly, that God tolerates it because out of it he brings an even greater good. And that can be intelligently believed, though it can't be proved. Hmm. We can see clues uh, to that in our own lives. If we look back uh, at our previous years and we ask, what was the the worst thing that ever happened to me? What was the the most horrible suffering that tempted me to despair? And then we think, all right, how did I overcome it? And did it make me a stronger and wiser person today? And most people usually say, yes, it did. Right. You didn't see it at the time. But somehow or other, uh, that worked out for uh, the greater good. Right, right. So if if God had followed the atheist advice and not tolerated any evil in his works at all, he would have had uh, a Garden of Eden full of nice, happy animal robots, but they would not be human beings who had the free will to make mistakes. Right, right. What's uh, interesting to me, I, I see a link, Dr. Kraft, with what you said earlier, quoting C.S. Lewis, uh, or, or paraphrasing him uh, on, you know, when we find a desire in ourselves that there's no corresponding reality in this world, that, you know, uh, that can satisfy it. Um, I have found it when, you know, dealing with people pastorally that are going through great grief, etc., uh, number one, and I think uh, you would say this too, uh, you know, fresh grief is never the time to philosophize because they're, they need to be loved and comforted. And I've often heard people say the best thing Job's friends did is the seven days where they sat around and said nothing, and that the problem started when they they began to talk. But the um, tears, tears are not telescopes; they do not help your eyesight; they blind it. Yes, yes, yes. Very good, very good. And I think that um, uh, you know, obviously, letting people grieve and letting people have that space to do that. But when they are ready to talk, I found that to be very, very impactful. That um, we have a family uh, in our church that's loosely connected to our church. Uh, mom and dad are Jewish. They lost their son uh, recently, uh, tragically, to a brain tumor. He was in his mid-20s. And they're just now getting to the point where I can tell they're talking about it a little bit more openly and really wrestling very practically through the problem of evil. And I think sometimes just to, to help that person identify, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't seem right. Parents aren't supposed to outlive their children Uh, And to, to, again, take that internal desire for something different uh, and see that as an echo, I think, that is of ancient origin, that things aren't really supposed to be like this and one day will be restored, um, you know, to to something entirely different can be helpful. And uh, I I just find it interesting when Nathan first asked you, um, you know, rather than giving a sort of an ontological proof for God's existence, you know, you, you went sort of the desire route. Um, which I do see as a very uniquely C.S. Lewis uh, sort of signature move. And I'm wondering, in your day-to-day interactions with skeptics, is that normally where you start? Well, I find that hardened atheists are usually totally impervious to the argument from desire. I'm surprised by that. Interesting. Uh, every, Every atheist I've talked to about the argument from desire, with one possible exception... Uh, says, no, I don't have this desire for heaven uh, or God, and when I die, I hope that's the end. I don't hope to go to heaven, and I don't hope to meet God. I'm perfectly satisfied with my life as it is. I wish it could last here forever, but it can't, so I'm resigned to that. Interesting. So I think 
I think that's significant. I think they're really suppressing something in them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a, uh, an argument which is either much more powerful than any purely objective argument or much less powerful, depending on where your heart is. Interesting. And is that where, you know, we would almost take comfort in the scripture that says only a fool says in their heart there is no God because we realize that there is something deeper going on there uh, than just those surface questions and, and those things that where someone is truly seeking God? Would you agree with that? Yes, and that brings us to the other interior argument that I mentioned, namely the moral argument from conscience. Mm -hmm. I think the the Bible calls the atheist a fool because uh, it's very tempting to believe that there is no God so that you're not accountable to any absolute authority, so that your conscience is manipulable. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that gives you great self-esteem. It makes you a Pharisee or a pop psychologist. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, the uh, is it the abolition of man, Doctor Craig? One of Lewis's books, I, I think it's that one, has this uh, wonderful appendix at the end where he talks about the Tao. Yep. Uh, and uh, what is that exactly? Because obviously, um, I mean, uh, evangelical Protestants over here, like we are, see any anybody mention the Tao, and it makes us very nervous. Uh, you know, so. Well, uh, Lewis deliberately used uh, a Chinese word rather than a, uh, an English word uh, to make the point that this is universally known by all cultures and all religions. Uh, Taoism is uh, a Chinese religion or philosophy that doesn't really have a personal god. Right. In that sense, it's like Buddhism. But on the other hand, it has a profound uh, awareness of the moral law uh, and not only the law of justice, but also the law of self-sacrificial charity. If you read their their main scripture, the Tao Te Ching, you'll find astonishing similarities between that and the Sermon on the Mount. Hmm. And Moses' point is that although God did not uh, allow other peoples in the world than his own chosen people to have an accurate concept of him theologically, he did allow them to have a, a, a conscience that was still working and was sufficient to uh, tell them what God's demands were, so that everybody is accountable, yes. even those that didn't have a, a special divine revelation accountable through their knowledge of conscience. Yes. And that, kind, of a, kind of an anonymous Christianity. Right, right. Yeah, and it was um, it was fascinating. Uh, several years ago, I, I had the chance to talk to a group of high school seniors, and I read excerpts fr uh, from that little section at the back of that book. And uh, it was interesting to see the kids. These are Christian school kids, you know, private school their whole lives. And I would ask them, now, where is this found in the Bible? And you, you, you would see kids... Searching the Bible. Oh, I'm pretty sure that's in Matthew. I'm pretty sure that's in Luke. And I said, No, no, this comes from uh, you know this uh, this Norse source, uh, mm -hmm. or you know, it, it was very interesting. And I think Lewis was brilliant to point that out. That uh, as you said, universal, all cultures, there is this sense of right and wrong. Um, he's 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 exposing a very popular lie that uh, we're taught in secular schools, namely that uh, uh, cultures are totally relative morally, and uh, there's no uh, agreement, and there's no fundamental universal moral law that is recognized by all cultures. That's simply not true. There has never been a culture which has believed or practiced the opposite of the Ten Commandments. Uh, yes. One where. Uh, children were admired 
dishonoring their parents, or people were admired for being uh, cowards or liars. Yes, interesting. Now, moving into um, the um, agnostic, the one who believes that, okay, maybe there is a, a god out there. So I think, yeah, there is a god out there, but there are so many gods. How can I possibly know that the god of the Bible, the god of Christianity, is the god that I should take on his word and I should take that the Bible is the truth because it is his word. Why not uh, the God of Islam or why not Buddha? Well, uh, a study of the world's religions will clarify something there that, that, that needs to be clarified. Namely, that it isn't true that there are many gods out there. There's only three basic religious options. Uh, either there's no God uh, or uh, there's one god, and he's partly good and partly evil. He's sort of everything. Uh, or there's one god, and he's all good. Hmm. Now, Jews, Christians, and Muslims all take the third option. Yes. In fact, the attributes of God in Jewish theology, Christian theology, and Muslim theology are identical. For instance, the 99 names of Allah in the Quran, they're all in the Bible, too. Hmm. There's a lot missing, the intimacy with God, and, of course, Christ, and God being a father, and God being love, uh, that's missing in Islam. But what Islam has is a pretty thick slice of, uh, of the Judeo-Christian God. So that's one option. The other option is the, uh, the Hindu option, or the mystical option, that God is a kind of pudding, and we're all parts of the pudding. Hmm. And therefore, evil is part of it as well as good. That's roughly pantheism. And then the other option would be that there's many gods, polytheism, and that, that's pretty much dead. <laughs> so it's either atheism, pantheism, or theism. <laughs> uh, so the reasons for preferring theism to pantheism are basically moral. If you're going to connect the two deepest, the deepest instincts of, of religion, the desire to worship some god, and morality, the desire to, uh, to be good and to obey your conscience, if you're going to unite those two things, you can't have a god that is just as evil as good. You can't have the god of, of Star Wars, the Force, that has a dark side. <laughs> and almost all atheists will agree with that. Yes. I, I never met, I suppose there are some uh, mystics or, or perhaps more Hindu or Buddhist inclined uh, thinkers, but I, I never met somebody who prefers a god that is half evil to a god that's all good. Hmm. That's not really a viable option. Interesting. Interesting. Then let's move into the uh, the three main um, uh, religions of of uh, monotheism, where there is one God: um, Islam, yep. Judaism, and Christianity. Between those three, um, how how could I possibly narrow it down and know that Christianity um, is the truth? Well, again, just look at history. Judaism comes first. Uh, and Christians and Muslims both learned the nature of God from the Jews. So you can't be a Christian or a Muslim without starting out there and being, at least in some sense, Jewish in your theology. Uh, among these Jews appears this man, Jesus, who claims to be the son of this God, the incarnation of this God. Not of the Hindu God, not of, of some pagan God, but of the, the one supreme, perfect, righteous creator of the universe. Uh, that claim is either true or false. 
uh, if it's false, it's the stupidest and most blasphemous thing ever said, and if any man ever deserved to be crucified, Jesus did. And if it's true, you have to be a Christian. Yes. Uh, yes. Six centuries later comes a major spin-off from Christianity, or, or Christian heresy, uh, of Islam, which says that the Christians got this wrong, Jesus was just a man, he never uh, claimed to be the Son of God, that's impossible, uh, and the Supreme Prophet is Muhammad. But Muhammad contradicts Jesus on a number of points. The, the Quran and the New Testament uh, maybe agree 90%, but those 10% contradictions have to be negotiated. Uh, so if you've already accepted Jesus' claim, uh, then to say that we know Jesus better six centuries later to this guy, Muhammad, who never met him and claims to be the Supreme Prophet, then we know from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who were eyewitnesses or interviewed eyewitnesses of Jesus as a contemporary, well, that's a, a, an ahistorical claim. It's not very likely. Mm-hmm. Further, if you look at the moral systems, you find that Christianity is completer. It's just as strong on justice and, and, and chastity and courage and the hard virtues as Islam, but it's got this emphasis on love and mercy and forgiveness that even Muslims are impressed by when they yes. meet Christians practice it. Yes. Interesting. Well, the uh, I, I was curious, how do you feel, uh, Dr. Kreft, about the role of women I'm actually surprised as our society becomes um, more more feminist, and I'm not even trying to say that in any pejorative way, that Islam has had such success in, in even penetrating Western pockets of culture because, to me, there seems to be a, uh, a breakdown there, um, the, the way women are often well, treated in Muslim culture. It's the pendulum effect. Uh, you have two opposite errors which reinforce each other because they don't they, they, both of them fail to, to find a position which is not a compromise but a, a, a kind of a higher position one of those is of course Islam's notion typical of most ancient cultures that men are superior to women and women's happiness consists in subordination to men the opposite of that is the typically modern view of sexual egalitarianism and equality and there's no significant difference between men and women at all. Right. Larry Summers, the president of Harvard University, was fired uh, simply for suggesting in public that perhaps we should think about that ancient idea before we totally dismiss it. Right, right. And that was, that was so outrageous that, uh, that he couldn't be tolerated there. Right. Well, those are two opposite errors. What you find in Christianity, and also in Judaism somewhat, uh, is, is a third view. Namely, that uh, men and women are designed to be complementary to each other, uh, and that there is a real difference, uh, which goes to the root of things, but that they are equal in value and equally called to be saints and equally the image of God. And that's the Christian view. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's um, uh, interesting to me in light of uh, some of the you know uh, things that have come out in recent years on Sharia law, treatment of women, etc., that I... Uh, my sense is, in these extreme Islamic cultures, the, uh, the one of the most terrifying things is to expose women to another way of life through Western media, etc., where they might see a husband and wife conversing about things, making decisions together, and uh, 
uh, that sort of thing. But that I didn't mean to get us off on that <laughs> that topic. I was just curious because I, I, you know, you've thought through everything, Doctor Craig. That's that's obvious. And well, um, I think I think that one of the reasons Islam is making gains in Western civilization uh, is precisely because that's something that we lack, namely the uh, the primitivism, the uh, the strength. Uh, I think Islam's form of it is is far from perfect. Sure. But uh, uh, our fascination with with primitive cultures and with culture class movies, things like Crocodile Dundee or The Gods Must Be Crazy, <laughs> yeah. show that we long for that strength. Now, Islam has that. It doesn't have the gentleness. It just has the strength, and we don't have the strength. We just have the gentleness. So they have the cross without Christ, and too many of us have Christ without the cross. Yes, well said, well said. Now, let me ask you, because you, you brought up um, Christ being the only way, um, what gives us as believers the authority? Um, isn't it a little arrogant? Isn't it a little uh, seclusionistic of us to um, – you, like uh, you like my way up word there, Greg? Um, oh, seclusionistic, dude. I like it. Um, isn't it aren't – we, aren't we being a little too arrogant? Aren't we being a little too on top of ourselves to say that Christ is the only way? Well, exactly the opposite, because we didn't invent that, he did. So what's arrogant is to edit God's mail and to say, Jesus, you're wrong, and you didn't live in the 21st century, so we're correcting you here. We know better than you do. Right. Uh, If he is the only way, well, that's that's absolutely startling, Uh, and that's not comfortable. And if he's not, then he's the most arrogant liar and blasphemer uh, in, in all religions, and that's not comfortable either. Mm-hmm. So we like to be comfortable, so we take a middle position, which is unjustifiable. It's the same as the uh, the famous Lord, liar, or lunatic argument about his claim to divinity. If, if he's not divine, and no other great religious leader, no great prophet claimed to be God incarnate, if he's not divine, mm-hmm. he's by far the worst religious leader in history. Hmm. Yes. Yes. So, so to say that he is not the only way. He said he is, but he isn't. He was wrong. Uh, that's not a, a a little error. That's that's a big error. Yeah. That that is uh, indeed the critic has a good principle in the back of his mind when he accuses us Christians of, of arrogance. Mm-hmm. Because if that's not true, that is indeed horribly arrogant and blasphemous. But if it is true, it's liberating. Yes, yes. And I, this is where I find, and I don't know if you've had this one, I've had this conversation with uh, skeptics before. Um, normally, I will try to show them that and say something uh, close to what you just said, that, you know, hey, I, I didn't invent this. I'm trying to be a faithful representative, a faithful representative of what Jesus said about himself. And of course, they'll say, well, where did he say it? I'll say, well, of course he said it. You know, in the Bible, and I'll look at John uh, 8, and I'll look at other passages, and uh, John fourteen six, and, yep. you know, and, and all of these great places where Jesus calls himself these things. And they'll say, well, that's in the New Testament. You can't rely on it. And that's typically where they'll use the telephone illustration, which is you know, so overused. Don't you remember, Greg, when you were in kindergarten, and the teacher would give little Johnny a message, and by the time it went all the way around the room, the message was completely different than what was originally passed on. So now it becomes almost a circular argument because you're going from the claims of Christ back to the canon uh, where these claims are found to, well, who says the canon should be accepted? And 
Um, curious how you uh, how you work through that mess. Very simply, uh, we don't start with the Bible. Right. We don't assume that the Bible is divinely inspired. We take the Bible simply as a historical document and use exactly the same secular and scientific standards on the Bible as we use on any other documents. Mm-hmm. And people who work in classics, uh, especially Greek and Roman documents, often say that uh, if they use the same critical and questioning standards on their documents as Christian theologians use on the New Testament, nobody would know anything about the ancient Greeks and Romans. Everything would be up for grabs. It's at least highly probable that uh, four different stories uh, of this man, who was so remarkable, uh, stories which don't contain historical errors or anachronisms, uh, which match each other, which seem to be uh, exactly what you would expect if you had eyewitnesses at different times and places writing in different audiences, uh, that we have four times as much evidence, more than four times as much evidence about Jesus as about any pre-modern figure in history. Mm-hmm. So on strictly secular standards, uh, the Gospels hold up. And then you get the big picture. Why was Jesus crucified? Well, uh, the Jews wanted him crucified because he was a blasphemer. Mm-hmm and the Romans wanted him crucified because they thought he was a political upstart. Mm. Uh, Why did they think he was a blasphemer? Well, throughout the Gospels, you have this uh, multiple claim of divinity. It's not just a couple of passages. In all the Gospels, he claims to forgive sins. Everybody sins. The Jews instantly react. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So that's not just a few verses. That's the, uh, the nub of the story. Yes. So who invented the story? If it wasn't Jesus... It must have been the early church. Why would they invent such a story? What what did they get out of it? Well, they got uh, uh, excommunicated and hated and misunderstood and persecuted and tortured and crucified, uh, and they gave up their lives for this lie that they invented. Why did they not do that? Mm-hmm. It's bad psychology. Hmm. Yes, yes. And uh, I, uh, John Stott, I'm paraphrasing a quote of his, but he, um, I read this in one of his books years ago that really has a similar approach that you have. And I'm glad to hear you say that, Dr. Kripp. It makes a lot of evangelicals nervous to say things like, oh, I won't start with the Bible. But, uh, you know, again, accepting the Bible as any uh, book from antiquity, uh, and as you said, using the same standards, eventually you can get the person to the claims of Christ, which is, you know, like you said, what got him crucified, what, what got him shut out. Um, the whole strategy of argument is at stake here, because the strategy of an argument, the whole purpose of, a, of an argument is it's a mode of communication by which you lead someone else from a premise that they already accept to a conclusion that they don't. Yes. And you show that their premises entail your conclusion. Yes. That's the strategy of argument. So you can't argue from premises that they don't have. They don't right. have the Bible as a premise. Yes. Except as a historical book. So you have to start with where they are. Right. Right. Yeah, it would be one thing if you met a a Christian who is very confused, right? right? Pastorally, that happens all the time. They would, oh, they, yeah. you know, they they do accept the Bible. They accept uh, the that the Bible is true. But you find out through friendship and uh, bad teaching they've gotten in other places that they've got some erroneous ideas. And right. uh, you know, give me that any day. That's much easier when the person accepts the Bible's trustworthiness because you've uh, you, you now it's just a question of finding the passages that will help them see 
that they were let in air. But uh, yeah, when you're dealing with a person uh, uh, that you have that you deal with so regularly, the skeptic, a very interesting approach. Uh, thank you, thank you, Doctor Kraft. That was great. Um, so now my question is um, for for anyone who's looking to have these conversations. I find um, a lot of Christians, and when I started out um, running down the road of apologetics, I found this true for myself as well. We tend to hesitate and pull back and not rely on uh, the truth of Scripture or the truth of what God's Word said or even the truth of um, of the facts of our argument that the Bible is a historical document. And so I find that we tend to be um, timid. We don't want to we don't want to quote unquote screw up. Um, what advice would you give to somebody who is, you know, looking to engage people um, on this level of of apologetics, but they're they're just too timid to do it? Great question. Well, obviously, timidity is a fault, and if your faith is strong and you know that what you believe is true, uh, you're not going to hide it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't use it as a premise, but you can be very upfront about it as a conclusion. This is what I'm trying to prove to you. I believe everything in the Bible, X, Y, and Z, uh, and I'm going to try to prove X to you. Let's mm-hmm. forget Y and Z for, uh, for the time being. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the course of proof, you don't start with the Bible, but if you are timid and say, well, uh, I think you may be able to believe this part of it, but I know you're not going to be able to believe that part of it, so I'll back off from that part of it. That's a bad strategy. That's not totally honest. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to be utterly upfront and and not back off in our conclusions, but mm-hmm. be very judicious about our premises, because yes. they share only a few of our premises. Yes, and... Um I'm, I was curious. Uh, have you ever read any of, of Tim Keller's work, Doctor Crave? Uh, you know, chief. Oh yes, the, I admire him enormously. He's great. Yes, good. I thought because there's so much overlap uh, between uh, things you've said. You, you've definitely come at it from a slightly different well, angle. We're, and, we're both disciples of C.S. Lewis. Yes, yes. We're both quoted constantly. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. I actually heard him say one time in an interview. He asked who his two greatest influences were, and he said C.S. Lewis and Jonathan Edwards. Which uh, a blogger I read said, yeah, they, they, you don't often think of them as going together necessarily. Uh, I think one was more of a, a theological influence, and the other yep. was probably more the obviously um, um, apologetics influence. So, who, who else uh, has influenced you, Doctor Crim? Obviously, C.S. Lewis, who's gotten the most press today. But curious, what what other thinkers have impacted you? Well, I think the among the philosophers, the most effective apologist for our generation is Pascal. Mm, yes. The Pensees are, are a kind of a Christian existentialism. Yes. Uh, and I find that students are fascinated with him. The, the, the role of the imagination and, and of desire and of the, the irrational factors in apologetics has usually been ignored or discounted. I don't think they should be. Uh, the fact that many students are simply bored and not interested in Christianity is is crucial. You've got to get their attention first. And Pascal yes. does that. He talks about things like death, yes, and and despair, uh, and, and and identity. Uh, it's as if he were living among us and meeting modern students and, and addressing their concerns. Right, it's astonishingly contemporary. And another one, of course, is Augustine, especially in the Confessions. Sure, another another complete package, head and heart together. Yes. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Thank you. 
No, it's it's been so great, and we do want to be mindful of your time, so we're uh, we're running out now. But um, thank you so much for taking your time and and being willing to join us today. Um, we we so much appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Yes, yes. Thank you, Doctor Kraft. And as always, when I talk to men of your caliber, I feel uh, uh, you know significantly dumber, and that's always good. Uh, because it, well, we we should all we should all talk to ourselves, and uh, uh, you are a man of my caliber, so you should talk to yourself and realize how dumb you are. I do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I I I have a wife that helps me with that too. On, uh, <laughs> this is why God invented yeah. women. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and sign off now. And uh, Greg, Doctor Kraft, we just rocked the Casbah from Boston. These guys to eleven.